This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And it's time for our twice-monthly series, Rule of Law, on how the rule of law silently shapes the world around us, without us even knowing it. And here's our own Alex Cortez with today's story. American Craig Richardson had a childhood that was a little bit different than his friend Ben Fries. Craig was hanging around with famous economists. Milton Friedman tucked me into bed when I was five years old, gave me a goodnight kiss on the forehead. My dad jokes that was the day I became an economist. While Ben, a British kid whose family moved to Zimbabwe, was hanging around with wild animals of a different sort. African stars on an African night when you've got lions roaring and hyenas whooping, uh, something that uh, is far better than any Mississippi star that you'd ever see, I'm quite sure. Their lives would be different later on, too. Craig interned at the World Bank. The woman who was the lead researcher said, well, we want you to do three background papers on three countries, Zimbabwe, Colombia, and Argentina. And I just rather impulsively said, I'll take Zimbabwe. And so that entire summer, I just got knee-deep in appreciating everything about that country in 1992. It was really the jewel of Africa. And so I wrote this 100-page background paper, which I really put aside. And then it wasn't for another 10 years that I went back to investigate what happened to Zimbabwe because it was just falling apart. And that was kind of the launch of this 15-year exploration into what happens when a country abandons rule of law and property rights. For Ben Freeth, it wasn't an academic study. It was real life. It was like being in a boxing ring with your hands tied behind your back. We had a, a couple of guys that did try and defend themselves with guns. They got killed, you know, when you're a few farmers against a, an army of 40,000 soldiers and, and 20,000 policemen, you don't stand a chance. Zimbabwe, like a lot of countries, was colonized. It was led by Cecil Rhodes, who fashioned himself as an entrepreneur, but he really came with machine guns and captured huge amounts of territory, which would later be called Rhodesia, named after himself, and created a colony of England. And Rhodesia was run by a small group of whites. And so for many, many years, all the way up until 1980, there was a huge disconnect between the fate of blacks and the fates of whites. In 1980, after a lot of guerrilla warfare, Britain really backed away from the leader at the time, and they had elections, and Robert Mugabe came into power in 1980. And Robert Mugabe was a very well-educated man, and also extremely shrewd and canny, as time would tell. And so the early story of Zimbabwe is a fairly good one. Um, he immediately created a series of primary, middle, and high schools for all the black citizens of Zimbabwe, and the literacy rate went up to 92%, which is the highest in all of Africa. And higher than the United States is right now. A lot of people thought he would kick out the whites at that point, but he didn't. The 1980s and early 90s 
as strong economic growth, tourism was growing, the agricultural system was really undergirded by about 4,000 white farmers who were there, many of them from British descent. They had very large scale farms. And this system was based on Zimbabwe's very strong property rights system. And I was really going to find out how important this was. Because the importance for any farmer or for any business really is to have collateral. If you go to the bank, you want to be able to have collateral. And the collateral comes from having a title to your land because that becomes the insurance policy for the bank. And the bank will loan this business money, but they know that they can foreclose on that land and get some of their assets back. And so that it becomes so important and so critical for economic growth is that people need to have property titles and that property title creates trust. And that's a really important point that a lot of economists in America miss because we just take property rights for granted. But in Zimbabwe, property rights were enshrined. They had a constitution very much like the United States. There was this blossoming of economic activity. So where did it all go wrong? We had been a one-party state. There was only Robert Mugabe and his party, and he had made sure that there was no opposition. Any opposition that had been raised up, he had stamped upon very quickly and persecuted until they were out of existence. And then in 1999, an opposition was finally formed, a viable opposition, and it was quite clear after 19 years of, of Mugabe's rule that Mugabe would be out of power when it came to elections. So what Mugabe did was he put together a referendum to change the constitution to entrench his power. The people were given the carrot of you're going to get land for free if you vote yes for this constitution. Of course, nothing is free. The land was to be seized from Zimbabwe's white farmers. And the people voted against that constitution, and that was a real shock for Mugabe. And he realized that he was going to have to do everything possible to ensure that the people were intimidated ahead of the election in 2000, so that the opposition didn't come into power. That's when all hell was let loose. Within two weeks of the result of that referendum, which Mugabe lost, we had farm invasions all over the country. It was well organized. Including on the farm of Ben's in-laws, which he farmed with them, and thousands of others. And Mugabe endorsed it all. It was done in a very violent way, and the police were under very strict instructions not to help us. And we suddenly realized what it was like to live without law, without the rule of law protecting us any longer. And when we come back more of this remarkable story, our rule of law series, what happens when a country abandons property rights and the rule of law. More after these messages.
This is Our American Stories, and we return to the story of Zimbabwe's dictator, Robert Mugabe, ushering in the seizure of farms owned by his country's white citizens. This is also the story of two friends, Ben Freeth, whose farm was taken, and Craig Richardson, an American economist. Let's pick up with Craig. Originally, Zimbabwe was before the whites colonized it and took it over, it was a series of communal lands run by different tribes, the Shona and the Ndebele. And, you know, honestly, they fought over land as well. And so within these villages, the chief is really the one who decides who gets the land. And that gives the chief a lot of power. And that's still, that, that's still existing today, side by side, with the current system. So there's been a tension about that. So these villages, there's a lot of communal land, and, and you know, and the upside of that is it sort of creates this very family environment, and you know, who is going to be there and who's not, and you can't just have strangers come in and move next to you. So it creates this kind of coziness, but there's a price of everything, and the price of coziness is poverty. <laughs> so that's one of the things that that I've tried to explain is that there's a, there's always a positive and a negative. So when you have the property rights, they can be threatening to a culture that has been there for a long time, and that's why it's really important. And if people are coming in, you have to be mindful of that. You have to be mindful of a culture that has been there for hundreds and hundreds and thousands of years and think about what's the right way to give people ownership over this process and transition. So this communal system grew up, and when Cecil Rhodes came in in the mid-1800s, of course, there was seizing of land. And so he did, he did the same thing, you know, as Mugabe did. I mean, he seized land without compensation in most cases. But over time, you know, over, over a period of 100 years, that land then began to be traded and sold and bought and sold by different entities. So, and, and then by that time also, a lot of whites were being born in Zimbabwe, you know, considered themselves Zimbabweans. They didn't think of themselves as British. They thought themselves, we are Zimbabweans just like everybody else. So in some ways, it's not very different than if you think about, I mean, here in North Carolina, I mean, we have land that we're sitting on here right now that, you know, was formerly, quote unquote, owned by the Cherokees, right? So we have every, I mean, the history of land is a history of theft in some ways, you know, and at some point you have to go back and you have to say, yeah, that happened, but it sometimes is really hard to correct those things as well. So... Fast forward, you know, sort of a hundred years, the land which had been initially seized by the whites is now being bought and sold on markets. And now the people who are a hundred years later are, you know, several, three generations after the fact are now buying land under the auspices of the Mugabe government, which is approving these, these sales. They are giving people letters that are saying, this is a letter that says that what you've done is proper and we recognize your constitutional right to own this land. So if you, it, by the 2000s, uh, when these seizures happen, there's a statistic that something like over 95% of all of these farmers had bought those farms on the market. So, you know, this idea that these people had taken money with, or taken the farms was not right. Their ancestors, yeah, but not them. 
Perhaps the greatest evidence that this shouldn't have been a black versus white thing is that 8,500 blacks had commercial farms that were just like those of the white farmers. And just like them, they were also successful. Their race had nothing to do with it. Their property title had everything to do with it. Communal lands that were literally right next to these productive white and black commercial farms were dusty, ugly, and unproductive. My wife's family have been farming in Africa for just over 300 years without a break. That's a very long time. That's a lot longer than many white Americans have been in America. And yet, because we are white people, a lot of the world seems to think that we cannot be Africans. How many generations does it take before people are considered to be from the place that they are from? In America, I'm quite sure there's, there's no question about a white person being able to be an American. But in Africa, amongst the black nationalists, they do not consider that a white person can be an African. Um, and there's something very wrong in that. We're kind of treated as though we are, we are second-class citizens, that we, we have lesser rights to everyone else by virtue of the fact that we have a different colored skin. And because we're white, the rest of the world looks the other way, and they don't want to they don't want to deal with this issue. Um, if we were a black minority people in a predominantly white country, the world would say, no, no, this is, this is absolutely wrong. And things like the United Nations Convention for the Elimination of, of All Forms of Racial Discrimination, complaints would go to the United Nations on, on that and, and, and things would happen. But because we're white people, that that doesn't happen. I, I've tried to find a country that would put a complaint into the United Nations. There's not one. We initially had an invasion on the farm and it wasn't violent, but it was obviously very disconcerting. That's an understatement. Over 20 black men entered their farm and refused to leave. Anxious that they might cut down trees on the estate to build homes, Ben's father-in-law, Mike Campbell, gave them a shed to sleep in, and they gradually took over the farm. Cows were stolen and slaughtered. Fires were started at random, and gunshots were fired in the middle of the night. And unlike most seizures, which took place in a matter of hours, theirs happened in slow motion over a matter of years. Which in many ways is almost worse. Quite early on in the farm invasions, um, we had a group come onto the farm that had come from a faraway place where there was a lot of malaria. We didn't have malaria on the farm and these people brought a strain of malaria with them. In a period of a month, nine of our farm workers died. And my sister-in-law, Heidi, 
was pregnant with twins at the time, and very sadly, she died along with the twins. So it was a it was a very tragic thing for the family. Uh, she was she was still very young and um, had a had a long and, and vibrant future. In 2004, we realised that a government minister was after the farm, and he pitched up at the farm with a bunch of guys with with AK-47s, and he said he was coming to take the farm. And um, we we said to him that he would have to take it, or that we would do everything possible to make sure that if he did take it, he would take it in a civilized and legal manner. And so that's when we as a family decided that we had to make a stand. Anyone going to the law courts was deemed to be an enemy of the state and there was huge intimidation for anyone that tried to use the law courts. By then, all the, the good judges had been intimidated out of office and all judges had been given farms themselves. Um, so we knew that there was really no chance of getting any justice in the law courts, but we decided that we had to go to the law courts even so. And I remember when my father-in-law signed that bit of paper, taking President Mugabe to court, we knew that it was probably the signing of our death warrants. And when we come back, we'll continue with our Rule of Law series, Zimbabwe's abandoning of property rights and the rule of law. And, of course, what terrific narrators, what terrific storytelling by both Craig Richardson, an American economist, and his friend, Ben Freeth. When we come back, more of their stories, more of this remarkable story about something we all take for granted each and every day here in America. This is Our American Stories. Turn to our Rule of Law series, Zimbabwe's Abandoning of Property Rights and the Rule of Law. And we pick up with Ben Freeth, whose family's farm was seized by the government. Zimbabwe law by then was, was getting very difficult because the following year, 2005, they changed the constitution to say that government could take any land at the stroke of a pen and we didn't have any recourse to be able to go to any court. Suddenly, we had no leg to stand on according to Zimbabwe law. And, you know, that's a really, really difficult place to be. The amazing thing was that within 
a week of having our hearing in the Supreme Court of Zimbabwe, the SADC Tribunal opened for business. And, and this was a court for all the 280 million people of Southern Africa. We hadn't even known that it was about to get up and running. So we were able to eventually end up in that SADC Tribunal, this human rights court for the whole of Southern Africa, where we took it on three grounds. We took it, first of all, on the fact that you can't just take all rights away from someone without any recourse to the courts. That ouster clause, as it's called, is something that goes against the rule of law. You know, you have a right in any legal society to defend yourself if something is happening to you that you believe is wrong. And if you're told that you can't even go to the court to say that the process is, is flawed, then um, you end up with no protection from law at all. And then the second point that we used was the fact that it was racially discriminatory. It was just because of the color of our skin that we were being victimized. And then the third aspect that we put forward in the SADC Tribunal and the Supreme Court was the fact that if you take something from someone, you should compensate them. It's the work that you have put in that has built that place up. When we built our house, for example, you know, we, we made every brick on the farm. We, all the trees that we used for the roofing were, were trees that were, had been planted on the farm by the family. It, it, it was all our own work. So to, to take it away from you without any compensation <coughs> is absolutely ridiculous. And two weeks before the main hearing of our case in the tribunal, they took us off, they abducted us. The henchmen of dictator Mugabe. And they beat us up uh, really severely and they tried to get us to withdraw from going to court. And by this stage, I was unconscious and my father-in-law was unconscious. And so eventually they got my mother-in-law, who, who by this time also was in a bad way. She had had her arm badly broken and was beaten around the head and all bruised. And um, they put a, a burning stick into her mouth. And she was in a bad way, but she was conscious and they, they got her to sign a bit of paper to say that we would withdraw from the court. And that's the kind of lengths that they wanted to go to, 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 to make sure that we, we couldn't continue with the law. And in the face of all of this, Ben and his family continued anyway. And we won on all three counts. The international court ruled in his favor, by the way, those are all black judges, and so that his farm should be restored, that Zimbabwe took this farm away improperly. And unfortunately, Zimbabwe just, the government totally ignored the ruling. But he got a lot of international attention for that, and, and a lot of that was really just, just to draw attention to Zimbabwe and how it was ignoring rule of law, and really to, you know, cast some shame on the government. And then he had another lawsuit where he went to South Africa, and again he won. And what he did was he attached to the lawsuit the claim on one of Mugabe's residences in South Africa, one of his, you know, vacation homes. 
and he won that case. And so what happened was that South Africa turned over the ASIF to Ben Free. So that was a pretty clever way to file that lawsuit. But the battle wasn't over. Several months after they beat Mugabe in the Sadic Tribunal came payback time. We had uh, all hell on the farm and, and a new massive invasion took place where our workers were thrown into fires and, and uh, dropped on their heads on concrete and had fractured skulls. Black workers, by the way, over 500 of them who were dragged off to all-night indoctrination classes to persuade them of Mugabe's way of thinking, which wasn't their way. They loved Ben's family. You know, really, really difficult times, which finally ended up with, with both our houses being being burnt down and, and us having all our crops stolen and, and, and all the tractors stolen and, and all the tools of our trade stolen. And, and we walked off that farm with, with not even a toothbrush between us as a family. Zimbabwe went into a downward spiral um, in 2000, and this is where I got interested again in what, what the heck was happening because the economy was collapsing so fast. And what happened was the 4,000 farms, you know, as they began to be seized by the government, there's probably only 300 left that are in way in Zimbabwean hands. The export sector collapsed. Those who seized the land didn't know what to do with it and didn't really have any interest to learn how. On Ben's family's farm, the present squatters there grow corn but admit that it's no good and produce a 60th of what their family did. And 40,000 fruit trees they leave untended. And the export sector was so important for bringing the hard currency in to pay the government's bills. So tobacco actually was coming to Winston-Salem, North Carolina, where I live, and RJR Tobacco is based here. So we were buying tobacco from Zimbabwe. When you had the loss of flow of dollars coming into the country of Zimbabwe, it starts running a huge budget deficit. And in a country where you have trust, you can, you can sell bonds. You know, so the United States can sell bonds to fill a deficit because there's trust around the world that we're going to pay on our debts. But here's what's critical is that when Zimbabwe broke with rule of law, they lost trust. They lost trust immediately around the whole world. And foreign investors pulled out. Nobody believed the government anymore about anything. So they couldn't sell bonds to plug this deficit. So what could they do? The only thing they could do is start to print money. So they began some printing money to cover these deficits. And we know what happens when you start printing more and more money is you start to have this inflation. And when I was there in 2006, the inflation rate was at 50,000% a year. So my dinner bill at the restaurant I ate at was about $400,000. And uh, I gave a nice tip of about $20,000 to my waitress, but that was only about $20 in U.S. dollars. 
So the whole bill was about $400,000. When I returned the following year in 2007, the same bill, the same restaurant, was over $3 million in Zimbabwe dollars. I, I didn't think it would be getting higher than that, but in fact, hyperinflation roared on. It went into the hundreds of millions of percent a year. They issued the biggest bill in the history of the world. They issued a $100 trillion note, which was worth about $3. And you can't make this stuff up, folks. Rule of law matters. Property rights matter. And we're not finished with the story. When we come back, the final installment, a tale of two friends, Craig Richardson, an economist, Ben Freeth, who owned a family farm that was seized by the government. More about their stories here on Our American Stories. Our American Stories, and we return to the final portion of this remarkable story for our Rule of Law series. Zimbabwe dictator Robert Mugabe's seizure of farms owned by white citizens led to the country's economic collapse. And two friends, Ben Freeth, whose farm was taken, and Craig Richardson, an American economist, have been bringing us through the story. And Craig picks back up on Zimbabwe's hyperinflation. That all ran its course by the time prices were doubling every single day, every 24 hours at, at its worst. By 2009, the government basically realized they couldn't go any further. They couldn't print money ever any faster. And they realized they were at the end of the road and they adopted the U.S. dollar. And what was remarkable is that inflation dropped from hundreds of millions of percent a year down to to 2%. I mean, it just matched the U.S. inflation rate because it, we're using the same currency. So from 2009 to, to here, they've basically been on the U.S. dollar and they've tried to start to issue their own currency, but it's been a big failure. So we've kind of kept them in check or kept their government in somewhat in check because they can't run deficits anymore, you know, unless they get foreign aid, but they really, they're really locked in that way. But this isn't enough to get them back. They have to rebuild their trust. Sierra even, he said, Mugabe. Anyone who's murdered white farmers uh, will never be prosecuted. And, and we've seen that over, over all the years where people have been murdered. None of them, none of the murderers have been prosecuted. Um, and it, it, it's, it's a brutal system that we live under where the government or government lackeys will, uh, will do that and police will stand by. In fact, when my wife went to the police station, the police just laughed at her. Literally, they laughed at her. They knew exactly what was happening. My wife reported all the shooting that had been going on, the fact that we'd been taken off to one of the torture camps that were being run at the time because it was election time and, and that's what the ruling party does ahead of elections. Uh, people were being tortured and we were one of those victims and the police just laughed, you know. Um, it, it's, uh, it's a pretty horrific thing to live through um, that, that there is this total impunity and what was really very... Uh, 
disappointing was that President Mnangagwa, this new president that we've got now, said to Zan Smiley from The Economist magazine that the 2008 elections, which is the time that I'm talking about when there was so many, I mean, there were tens of thousands of people that were tortured. He said, Mnangagwa said, there was no violence. That election was free and fair. He said, there are no reports in any police stations of any violence. And, you know, I remember lying in hospital with, with victims of this violence, victims who had been tortured like we were tortured and had broken bones in their bodies like we had broken bones in our bodies. And um, for the current president, who was head of the Joint Operational Command during that 2008 election to say that there was no violence during that time is, is horrific. But none of those people were ever prosecuted. And under Monongagwa, they won't be prosecuted either because he says there's no, there was no violence. But there were hundreds of people killed and tens of thousands of people tortured within the inches of their lives. And the torture is even more widespread in a much more daily way. The people that used to feed the whole of Southern Africa were now hungry themselves. Ben and his wife still live in Zimbabwe, and he has now started a foundation called the Mike Campbell Foundation. Named after his father-in-law, who died after the beatings he took. Which works with black farmers on improved farming technique. They have farming yields that are five times higher than government farms. So he's just a remarkable guy. You know, God, I believe, is a God of justice and, and God wants us to be able to stand for him for justice. And, you know, when you've got your life at risk, you have to know what is going to happen to you if, if they come and take you out. So our Christian faith has been fundamental in giving us the courage and giving us the impetus and giving us the provision in fact as well because there's many times when you, you wonder how on earth you're going to be able to carry on because everything's been taken and it's very difficult to to make a living and and God has provided for us materially to be able to carry on he's provided for us in the form of ensuring that lawyers come alongside us and they've done incredible pro bono work for us because uh, they've believed in what we're doing and because uh, I believe God has, has directed them to, to help out. So our Christian faith is what has kept us going through all these very troubled times and has kept us also from becoming bitter and full of hatred because you know, this is this is a natural thing when when people come and, and, and take everything that you've ever worked for and when people in your family die and when you get beaten within an inch of your life and, and things like that, then the natural thing very often is to become bitter. Um, and I've seen it. I've seen people become bitter and God has protected our hearts from from becoming bitter because at the end of the day, Bitterness is something that destroys you and destroys 
the people that are around you. It does nothing to change anything for the better for, for anyone. Uh, it's, it's a terrible thing, bitterness. So we, we just thank God for, for protecting our hearts from that bitterness that, that is so possible and so probable in circumstances like we've faced. Ben and his family have committed to stay in Zimbabwe for the long haul until law rules the day. And although the present is full of chaos, there are pebbles of promise. So I'll tell a kind of a quick story uh, about that. I was, um, when I was in Zimbabwe, you know, one of my favorite things is to get out of the city and drive, drive out in the countryside. So I, I had a fellow who who got with me in a Land Rover and we were driving through villages and, and a couple of, you know, I like to see the extraordinary and the ordinary. So I, I stopped at a farm uh, where there were some dairy cattle and there was a, a young uh, black farmer there he had a very nice, tidy house there made out of brick and a beautiful uh, second um, a second place, an outdoor um, cooking area, again, beautiful thatched roof, you know, 30 dairy cattle. He was, we turned out he was dairy farmer of the year. Um, and we started talking and I said, you know, what's your key to success? And he got this big smile on his face and I, I did not feed him this at all, believe me. And I, and I said, what is the key? And he said, he said, my property title, it's everything to me. And I said, well, what do you mean? He said, this, this is what is the whole reason why I've invested in my farm. He said, I was, I was nobody. I was had a little quarter acre plot. I could barely feed anybody before that. And I had no reason to. He said, but I got this property title and suddenly my whole world changed. And he just said, my property title, it's everything to me. You know, and that really stuck with me. Um, and the second part of that same day, um, I was still, you know, driving through these dusty roads and you know, the sort of stereotypical um, African mud huts you would see. And suddenly we saw another house being built that was brick. And um, again, with windows and, you know, beautiful brick house um, just coming out of the ground. And we stopped and there was a woman there and I stopped and I said, hey, you know, hey, you know, my name's Craig Richardson. Um, and she was a little bit shy about talking. What's this guy? What does he want? But we talked a little bit, and then I, I asked her, I said, well, you know, I'm interested. Why are you building this nice brick house? And she said, well, I just got a, um, a property title. And I've suddenly now, I, I've spent all, you know, last month drawing out my house and putting where my windows would go. And now I got a loan from my bank. And I have a field now that I'm thinking completely differently what I'm going to grow and how I'm going to grow and what I'm going to sell. You know, and, and the, it was funny because the guy driving with me didn't really, he, you know, he was, he was like, I would have never thought to ask that question. You know, it was sort of right in front of him, you know, like, like it is with a lot of us, things that are right in front of our noses. We don't even think to ask, but it was just remarkable. And I have pictures of that house that I show, you know, because it's just remarkable in both of those cases, how these were people who were subsistence, you know, on subsistence. And that turn of events, getting that property title, completely transformed everything. Getting that property title completely transformed everything. And we don't know 
We can't imagine life in this great country or anywhere else for that matter without the property right and the rule of law that supports that property right. Terrific work, Alex, as always. And this story, by the way, was inspired by a paper that Craig Richardson wrote for the think tank, the Cato Institute. It was entitled, How the Loss of Property Rights Caused Zimbabwe's Collapse. If you want to dive even deeper into this story, make sure to go to Cato.org and search for Craig's paper. And while there, check out all of Cato's great work. They're bringing liberty to life for all of us. Our Rule of Law series, twice monthly, on Our American Stories, and you can subscribe to the podcast by simply searching for Rule of Law on iTunes. Leave us a review if you can, and a five-star rating if you believe that we actually deserve it. This is Our American Stories. Sister Rosetta Tharp was an American singer, songwriter, guitarist, and a pioneer of mid-20th century music. She attained popularity in the 1930s and 40s with her gospel recordings, characterized by a unique mixture of spiritual lyrics and rhythmic accompaniment that was a precursor of rock and roll. She was the first great recording star of gospel music and among the first gospel musicians to appeal to rhythm and blues and rock and roll audiences, later being referred to as the original soul sister and the godmother of rock and roll. No, 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 She influenced rock and roll musicians including Little Richard, Chuck Berry, Elvis Presley, and Jerry Lee Lewis. When Johnny Cash gave his induction speech at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, he referred to Sister Rosetta Tharp as his favorite singer when he would listen to her on the radio as a child. WHBQ, and they had a program on there called Red Hot and Blue late at night where they played back then what they called race music. And there I heard some of my my earliest heroes. And it was at the home of the blues record shop where I bought my first recording of Sister Rosetta Tharp singing those great gospel songs. Willing to cross the line between sacred and secular by performing her music of light in the darkness of nightclubs and concert halls with big bands behind her, Sister Rosetta Tharp pushed spiritual music into the mainstream and helped pioneer the rise of pop gospel. I'm so glad somehow I've got salvation now. It keeps the spirit moving in my soul. Lottie Henry, a member of Tharp's backup vocal group, the Rosettes, remembers Sister Rosetta Tharp's talent. She could play a guitar like nobody else. Nobody. Here's Joe Boyd, American record producer and writer who played a crucial role in the recording careers of Pink Floyd, R.E.M., and 10,000 Maniacs. I think Rosetta was a hugely important figure. Let's you know, 
She was really unique as a guitar player. She had a big influence on somebody like Chuck Berry, who was one of the most influential guitar players in the world. And here's Gordon Stoker from Elvis Presley's backing band, The Jordanaires. She did incredible picking. That's what really attracted Elvis was uh, her picking. And he liked her singing too, but he liked that picking first <laughs> uh, because it was so different. And here's Gail Wald, Sister Rosetta Tharp's biographer. She had a major impact on artists like Elvis Presley. When you see Elvis Presley singing um, early songs in his career, I think if you imagine that he is channeling Rosetta Tharp, it's not an image that I think we're used to thinking about when we think about rock and roll history. We don't think about the black woman behind the young white man. Sister Rosetta Tharp was born on March 20, 1950, in Cotton Plant, Arkansas, not far from the Mississippi River. Her parents, Katie Bell and Willis Atkins, were both cotton pickers. Here's biographer Gail Wald and Ira Tucker, friend of Sister Tharp and lead singer with the American gospel group The Dixie Hummingbirds, talking about the influence that Rosetta Tharp's parents had on her as a child. We don't know too much about Rosetta's father. What we do know about the father is that Willis Atkins could sing, and so it's possible that some of her gift of singing came from her father. Her mother um, was an evangelist for the Church of God in Christ. Her mother was incredibly passionate about the church. Rosetta's mother, Miss Katie Bell is what we called her, she was a very traditional person, and basically she was what, what we called a stomp-down Christian. I mean, that's one that enjoyed stamping her feet and patting her hands and celebrating what she believes in. And the reason that I think that Rosetta really became such a strong woman was because of her mother. Because her mother, again, was the same type of person. She had no fear. She would take her guitar, she would take her tambourine, she would take a chair and she would sit outside and play for people and try to convert them and to get them to go to church. In 1921, Katie Bell left Rosetta's father to become a traveling evangelist for the Church of God in Christ. Taking six-year-old Rosetta, she left Cotton Plant, Arkansas and joined the exodus of poor black Southerners heading north. There was work in Chicago and even something more crucial for the young Rosetta. Migrants brought the blues from the Mississippi Delta and jazz from New Orleans. Here's Anthony Halebutt, Grammy Award-winning record producer, and Gail Wald, Sister Rosetta Tharp's biographer, on this important time in Rosetta's life. Rosetta is often seen as a country singer, but that's a fallacy. Her major development occurred very early. She moved to Chicago when she was six. She and Mother Bell joined Robert's Temple Church of God in Christ. And the Chicago Sanctified Church was bubbling with musicians and new songs. And so she was exposed to something that was new. It was not rural. It was an urban kind of religious singing. It was at that church where she first really started performing, um, where she was the main attraction. There's a great story that has her being put when she's six years old on the top of the piano, um, holding a guitar, being put there so that she could be seen by the congregation and playing and singing and charming everyone with her talent and her precociousness. Yeah. 
And when we come back, more on the life of Sister Rosetta Tharp, the godmother of rock and roll who influenced everyone from Elvis Presley to Johnny Cash and Chuck Berry. our American stories. You're listening to Elvis Presley. Some people think he was the king of rock and roll. But Elvis Presley said that the real queen of rock and roll, the godmother of rock and roll, was Sister Rosetta Tharp. And we're listening to her story right now. Jesse's doing a great job, as always, on these music stories. I would urge you, if you get a moment, put in the words Sister Rosetta Tharp and Didn't It Rain on a YouTube search, and you will see something extraordinary. And everything we're talking about you're going to see the way she held that Gibson SG, a white Gibson SG, as she comes off a carriage in Manchester by a train station in a white mink coat, gets in front of a small uh, ensemble. There are a bunch of white British kids waiting for this African-American lady in a white mink coat holding a white Gibson SG, doing the duck walk, all the moves that you'd see from Chuck Berry and Keith Richards. She created so many of them. But let's now return to the story of Sister Rosetta Tharp. I'm so glad somehow I've got salvation now It keeps the spirit moving in my soul Here's Anthony Halebutt, Grammy Award-winning record producer, talking about Sister Rosetta Tharp's early performances before her teenage years. There's something within me that just holding the rain she told me that when she was a girl, not even 10, she was immediately seen as an all-purpose musician. She'd go to a revival and she'd play her guitar. And if the people would get happy afterward and shout, she would drop the guitar and run to the piano and accompany them with her piano chords. And then she might get up and cut a couple of dance steps herself. She was a phenomenal showwoman. On life battlefield. Throughout her teenage years, Sister Rosetta Tharp was taken by her mother from city to city to perform in churches, tabernacles, and revival meetings, winning the hearts of thousands with her demure looks, angelic voice, and unique guitar style. She soon became a nationwide celebrity within the church, and this Philadelphia church is one of the first she performed in back in the 1930s, Church of God in Christ. Here's church parishioner Helen Henderson remembering Sister Rosetta Tharp. When I saw Rosetta, I was a, I was about maybe ten years old. Oh, she had she had the most beautiful voice and the way she could speak to you. It made you feel different. 
you knew something was going on, even if you didn't understand really what it was. And that's the way it was with me because I was a child. And here's the pastor of that church, Robert Hargrove. Many of the hymns were expression of suffering and wanting to survive, many of them. And when she came and they saw the expression of her, the freedom that she expressed in her singing and dancing, it woke up the congregation. It focused them on something that was on the inside that they never gave expression to. Rosetta would start looking up. She didn't look at anybody. She looked up as if she saw God. And as if God was in her and she was communing with him rather than with a human being. When Rosetta Tharp was 19 years old in 1934, her mother married her off to a preacher, the Reverend Tommy Tharp. For the next four years, she and Tommy worked for the church. Her job was to draw the crowds while he preached from the pulpit. But in spite of her mother's good intentions, the marriage was not working out. Here's Rosetta Tharp's best friend, Roxy Moore, remembering her old friend while sitting behind the keys at the piano. Look up! Sister Rosetta in the summer of 1937. She seemed a little bit glad that she was married, but she didn't seem to be very happy. And that's the reason I took to her. Because, you know, I wanted to just make her happy, make her feel as special as she really was. But I didn't have any idea that she and Tommy wouldn't make it. Ira Tucker, longtime friend of Sister Rosetta Tharp and lead singer for the Dixie Hummingbirds, remembers Rosetta's first husband a little differently. He was a tyrant. Um, from what my parents used to say and talk about, uh, he seemed to um, come out of the real, real sub-old school and believed in the kind of almost caveman-like attitude towards women. She was just a meal ticket. She was a performer, and he used her to bring people to his churches, and he would put her up to sing. And after a few years, she had enough, and she said, you know what, I'm going to leave all of it. And she made that big jump. Rosetta then left her husband and took her mother to New York. In a city full of nightclubs, Rosetta was soon noticed and offered a spot at the prestigious Cotton Club, singing to a white audience. For my time, for my time, it's my delight to make things right for God. But the song she was given by the men in charge made no mention of God. The lyrics were about pleasing her man. Here again is Roxy Moore and Ira Tucker. It was like a bomb had dropped on gospel music when she flipped. <laughs> it, it was like, what? You know, I can't believe she's, that's Sister Rosetta Tharp. She's not supposed to be singing that kind of music. Oh, she was criticized and ostracized. I mean, the church people just, you know, just thought that she had just gone way off. Oh, 
Having discovered that she loved God and nightclubs, Rosetta decided to sing gospel in church and join the secular world of show business at the same time. The offers began to pour in. She was wanted by all of the big bands of the day, and in October of 1938, she signed a contract with Decca Records. Sister Tharp was also beginning to stir controversy. Here's record producer Anthony Halebutt on what was happening at the time. Her first hit was a song called Rock Me. And the, the lyric is, Jesus hear me praying. She sang, won't you hear me praying? So when, when she came to the chorus, when she sang, rock me, and growled, rock, it sounded really, to many people, like uh, an invitation, and not to the altar. And here's biographer Gail Wald talking about this part of Sister Rosetta's life. Recording the song in that particular way marked her as someone who was having the nerve to reinterpret a spiritual song for a secular audience. I think there was also a piece of her that was just rebellious. She does some very risque material with Lucky Millinder, most notably a song called Tall Skinny Papa, which was a big hit for Millinder's band, and she was the lead singer on that. And she sings, I want a tall skinny papa. There's no way of <laughs> misinterpreting I want a tall skinny papa for anything that has to do with um, spirituality. Roxy Moore also remembers that song all too well. The next thing I heard was this recording out of Rosetta with the tall, skinny papa. So I said, it can't be Rosetta. So I went and bought the record. And after I listened to it, I said, oh my goodness, sister's out there singing that stuff. So when I, I saw her, I said, sister, I heard you tell Lucky Miller that you weren't going to sing that stuff. She said, when I saw that contract, he had a clause in there that I had to sing whatever he gave me to sing, she said, and I didn't know it. And I had a seven-year contract with him. She said, and I had to do it. I have a question to ask you. Want you to tell me if you can. I want somebody to tell me just what is the soul of man. Following the controversy with Tall Skinny Papa, Rosetta resolved to stick with the songs she knew best. Gospel songs. Her loyal followers back in the church got over the shock and stayed with her while she gained new fans that loved her music. This wasn't easy to pull off, but somehow, she did it. By the age of 25, Sister Rosetta Tharp was rated among the finest popular musicians of the day. In less than five years, she had established herself in a male-dominated industry, singing the songs she chose to sing in her own distinctive way. She was now rich, famous, and officially gospel music's first superstar. Yes, I'm 
And when we come back, more on the life of Sister Rosetta Tharp. This is Our American Stories, and now our final segment on the life of Sister Rosetta Tharp. In a highly segregated society, black and white musicians performing together back then was considered highly taboo. However, Sister Rosetta Tharp was more than happy to defy convention. Are we here, church? People say they are in this holy way. There are strange things happening every day. Gordon Stoker, from a band called the Jordanaires, remembers one such act of defiance. She was more or less a pioneer in asking us to even perform with her. She called us her four little white babies. And I thought it was so cute that, you know, that she referred to us as that, as, as that way. I thought that was just something I'll never forget. And we just loved to sing with her because when she started snapping her finger, man, and started singing on a tune, you couldn't help but sing. I know the first time we worked with her, they, they booked us. We went, to the, we went to the stage door, and some man came to the door, and, uh, and we, one of us said, well, we are, we are the Jordanaires. And he said, hmm, you, you are the Jordanaires? Well, he said, this is going to be a surprise to our audience. Sister Rosetta didn't tell him that we were white. <laughs> she booked us, but she didn't tell him we were white. And it, it, when we first went out on the stage, they didn't really know how to take us, but then we started singing, working on the building. But then on then we were in. By the age of 30, Rosetta had survived two brief and unhappy marriages. In 1951, Sister Rosetta Tharp invited 25,000 people to her next wedding to her manager, Russell Morrison, followed by a vocal performance at Griffith Stadium in Washington, D.C. This was a massive publicity stunt. They would sell tickets to her fans and the recording rights to Decca Records. Here's biographer Gail Wald. So she records uh, her wedding ceremony and a concert that follows it in 1951. 25,000 people come out and pay admission prices to attend her wedding. They bring wedding gifts for her. They bring crystal. They bring um, dishes for her. Someone even buys her a television set. It's a total showbiz move. And at the same time, it's a, it's a wedding ceremony um, conducted by a minister, a real wedding ceremony. Despite criticism from her friends for marrying her own manager, Sister Rosetta Tharp remained married to Russell for the next 22 years. Meanwhile, back in the Mississippi Delta region, young white musicians were just beginning to discover the raw energy and complex rhythms of African-American gospel. George Klein, a friend of Elvis Presley's, describes the scene. There was a hip thing happening in Memphis at that time. There was a little church, and it was cool. It was a cool thing to do on Sunday nights only. You would go there, and there would be Elvis and some of the other guys from the area. And it was unusual because back in those days, white people had to sit in the back, and it was roped off. And we would sit back there, and we would watch these black spiritual singers sing on Sunday night. Oh. 
The thing that gospel spiritual music brought to popular music was feeling. Gospel spiritual music put the guts and the feeling and the real soul into it. And uh, people like Elvis and Johnny Cash and Jerry Lewis and Carl Perkins and those guys, Buddy Holly, if you will, they saw that and they adapted to that. And that's really was the essence of rock and roll. Thinking about it, Sister Rosetta Thorpe, she had this great feeling. And that's what Elvis was looking for, feeling, because that's what was that's where it all came from. By the early 60s, Sister Rosetta Tharp's influence was continuing to spread as yet another generation fell under her spell. Here's a recording of the one and only Bob Dylan talking about Sister Rosetta Tharp on the radio. Sister Rosetta Tharp was anything but ordinary and plain. She was a big, good-looking woman and divine, not to mention sublime and splendid. She was a powerful force of Nietzsche, a guitar-playing, singing evangelist. It's a clean train. Everybody ride it, if you can. You know, she traveled to England with Muddy Waters and a whole bunch of other blues performers in the early 60s. And I'm sure there are a lot of young English guys who picked up an electric guitar after getting a look at her. In the summer of 1964, Sister Rosetta Tharp was booked to perform in a British gospel television music special. The musicians were all American, the audience, English students. The venue, an old railway station just outside Manchester, England. Joe Boyd, the tour manager of the 1964 folk, blues, and gospel caravan, remembers that performance. The Manchester gig was a curiosity in the middle of the tour for us. It was kind of bizarre, but you know, we were all new to England and we were aware of all this interest in blues and gospel. We all thought it was strange, the setup with the audience on one platform and the musicians on the other. And... <laughs> And she rose to the occasion. She loved the drama of the situation and to trying to bridge that gap between the platforms and sell the whole thing across the, the track to the audience. By now, Sister Rosetta Tharp was 49 years old and she had been touring on the road for 40 of those years. But even in cold, wet, windy England, the magic was still there. As she arrived on a horse-drawn carriage, walked to the stage, strapped on a white Gibson SG, and began to sing, Didn't It Rain? Didn't it rain, children? Rain, oh yes. Didn't it? Yes, didn't it? You know it did, didn't it? Oh, oh yes, how it rained. While Rosetta was away in Europe, her mother was becoming increasingly frail. In 1968, Katie Bell died. For 53 years, she had stuck close to her daughter, through good times and bad, and the one constant figure reminding Rosetta of her faith in God. The loss took a heavy, heavy toll on Rosetta. She became increasingly depressed, and to make matters worse, she was diagnosed with diabetes. There is a divine power. I believe it. I don't know about you, but I got to believe it, because I was raised that way. I sing this song. Made in 1970 in Denmark, this is the last known recording of Sister Rosetta Tharp performing. Precious Lord, take my hand, lead me on. 
let me stand I'm tired You done worked so hard And I'm weak Rosetta's friend, Roxy Moore, noticed a black spot on Rosetta's foot one day and told her to have it checked out by a doctor. Roxy Moore and Ira Tucker described what happened next. Through the storm. She wouldn't listen to anybody. So the next thing, foot started turning black. Then she did have to go to the doctor. Then they found out they had to cut a leg off. Just the same. Sometimes she would call me and say, Sister, please come. Please come to see me. And I would say, all right, I'm coming. But the last few months I didn't go because, you know, Russell was acting like he didn't want nobody taking over from him. When I went over to see her and said she was in the bed and she was, and she, she would say, where's Russell? I said, downstairs. And she would say, He's asking you about shows, right? And I said, no, he didn't say anything. He said, yes, he is. He, he wants to know if I'm going back. He said, and I'm going back. But I'm not going to tell anybody when I'm coming back. But I am coming back. But she never did. On October 9th, 1973, the eve of a scheduled recording session, Sister Rosetta Tharp passed away in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, as a result of a stroke. She was buried in Northwood Cemetery in Philadelphia. In 2008, some 35 years after Rosetta's death, the governor of Pennsylvania declared that the 11th of January will be known as Sister Rosetta Tharp Day. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. Didn't it rain, children? And great job as always, Jesse. This is Our American Stories. Didn't it? Yes, This is Our American Stories, and today we have one of our favorite regular features, The Villages Stories. Our youngest producer, Faith, has been going to The Villages, Florida, for quite some time. It's the largest retirement community in the country with over 150,000 residents. This time, she brings us a story from a woman named Violet, touching on an important topic, single motherhood. Take it away, Faith. The Villages has all kinds of different people. But everyone from the outside can often seem the same. But the more I talk to the folks there, the more I realize the variety of different backgrounds that exist, including the different types of struggles that people have gone through. This time around, I spoke with Violet, the leader of a hula dance troupe. She has loved dancing her whole life but didn't get into it just for fun at first. When I was a baby, I was very, very pigeon-toed, and my, I would you know, literally fall if I'd run, I'd trip over my own feet and fall. So the doctors wanted my mother to put me in those, these uh, braces that spread your feet apart like this, and it's metal. And uh, she didn't want to do that, and so she put me in dance. So I started dancing at two and a half. That's, how I started so, that's why I started so young. But I loved it. I mean, I, you know, tap and ballet, and then all throughout my childhood, I did 
um, you know, tap and ballet pretty much. Uh, high school, I was in the modern dance club, and I competed. I competed in line dancing, and I did competition country western couples. And actually, that's how my husband now, that I have, how we met. He was one of the judges in one of the dances, uh, the competition contest that I was in. He saw me. He couldn't keep his eyes off me, he said. So, and then that's, um, I think that's kind of a life-changing, because I find it, I was mostly single most of my my life with my kids, so I struggled, had a lot of struggles. Were you married before? I was married a few times, yeah, but uh, I, I guess you can say, you know, just choose wrong or, you know, you think, I can't explain it. She mentioned choosing wrong before she met her now husband. So, what was life like for Violet? Turns out she raised four children on her own, which of course involved a lot of sacrifice. I'll tell you how poor we were one time when I was single and uh, had a real tight budget. Um, it's kind of a sad thing because uh, my youngest daughter was maybe six or seven. It was a Christmas and I had no extra money to buy Christmas not even from from Santa Claus, put anything in their stockings, nothing. And so that Christmas I had to tell my youngest daughter, because the others already knew that there was no Santa Claus. And I just I think I just crushed her. That was a hard that was hard for me to tell and she, you know, that broke her heart, but I you know, that's how poor at one point we were, but you just you just push through it. You just gotta push through it and do the best you can and and do a lot of praying that, you know, for guidance. And sometimes she had to even give up sleep just to make ends meet. When it got real tight, I had to get a second job. And I got uh, a job with uh, the Wall Street Journal throwing the paper. And I, I, and that was a good route because Wall Street Journal doesn't come out on Saturdays and Sundays, just during the week. So I would get up like at 1 in the morning, get ready. And my kids were old enough to get themselves ready and catch the school bus. Thank, you know, thank God for that. And... Um, I'd get myself ready, I'd have to go pick up my papers by 2.30, and then I'd go to my route, which was kind of far, south side of Houston, and I'd throw my paper route, and then I would go to work, starting at 7 o'clock in the morning. And then I'd come home, I had a little bit of time, I had to, I had to be in bed by no later than, for me, to get the sleep I needed, no later than 7 o'clock at night. I mean, anywhere between five, and so that was that was uh, that was difficult. So that's what I did to get to get me some more extra money. So you did the work of a paper boy, but you know through the car. You saw I was very good at slinging those papers. <laughs> yeah, I'd sling it. I had a small car too. But how long did you do that for? I did that for about eight months. I, I, the stuff that I've gone through is like, oh my God, did I do that? I'm sure your kids appreciate you a lot. They do. They do. I'm sure when they were younger, they couldn't understand, well, how come I can't have a car? You know, Susie, Joe, parents bought her a brand new car to go to school. Why not? I couldn't. I couldn't. I didn't have a brand new car. Wait, are there, so I'm sure when they were younger, they didn't understand. Have there been epiphanic moments for them? My youngest daughter, uh, she was in the Navy. She's uh, 40. She's her 40th this year. Uh, she has. She has come to understand what I had gone through. And she understands that you know, I was very strict, 
very strict mother and you had to be with four kids by yourself. I was a very strict mother. <laughs> Do you think you were too strict at times? No, I don't. I really don't. I mean, it, they, they've turned out beautifully. My kids. I think, I know she understood. They understand. I mean, um, I mean, they knew I loved them. I mean, I didn't hate them. No, it was strict for their own good, you know. Just like, you know, you need to go to work and you need to you need to pay for your clothes. And, and uh, it's still my oldest daughter to this day. The first thing she does when she goes shopping for clothes, she goes to the bargain rack. So it made her real, you know, thrifty with her money. So they, they all, you know, whether they believe it or not, they learned a lot from me. I still struggled. I mean, I still struggled, and I worked hard. Um, the kids, you know, when they turned 16, they had to get a part-time job and help, you know, not so much help me, but to be able to buy their clothes, makeup, whatever they needed, shoes at that point. That, and I think that taught them how to take care of themselves. So all my experiences in life, I think, helped it build, build me, build me, made me strong. When do you feel like you saw the light at the end of the tunnel? When I got my manager job, uh, you know, the money, I, I made pretty, not great money, but I made decent money. I was able to buy a house on my own. Um, and so, I, you know, it started, things started falling into place then. And then shortly after that's when I met my husband, Bill. What was it that helped her through this difficult time? My church. I found... Um, when I was, when the kids were younger, I, I grew up Catholic. Of course, my mother was in Italy. Of course, I'd be Catholic, right? Um, but I found another church, um, the LDS Church, Latter-day Saint. It's Mormons. That was a big turning point for me. It gave, like you said, it gave me strength. It gave me focus. Uh, it, made, it gave me, it helped me to know who I was, where I was going, and why I was here. I mean, all those questions people go, you know, what's the purpose of life? What's this and that and the other? And, and what so, are those things for you? It's in the belief of the Mormon Church. It tells you in, in this church. It tells you that uh, families are forever, not just um, not just here on earth, but you will be reunited with your family, your husband, your wife, wife or whatever, children, and your grandparents. So you'll be reunited there. So, and if you believe those things, you know, it's just then it's not so scared, scary, you know, like what's going to happen to me or what, you know, so you know that stuff. So it gives you, that part gives you strength um, to, to go on. Many people look to religion to help them through hard times. It gives them some sort of stability, a community, and the support that they need in order to keep going. So for a young single mom, or say yourself, what would you want to go back and tell yourself? How would you encourage someone who's in that position? Because that's hard. It is very hard. I would say, you know, just continue on. Just push through it. Push through it because it's not going to be forever. You're going to get past that point of struggling and so and something, but God will reward you for the struggles you've gone through. And, and, so just push through it. Just keep on, keep on, keep, keep your head straight there. Violet worked extremely hard. And thankfully, her hard work began to pay off. I have an enormous amount of respect for her. 
sacrificing sleep, money, and comfort in order to provide and protect her kids. She learned and grew as a person in ways that she otherwise wouldn't have. And her kids have grown to understand the sacrifices she made, even though at times before it was hard for them to understand. And they were all so happy that she found her husband. Someone to take care of her, protect her, the way that she did for them. So while Violet has had some difficulties, things seem to be going quite a bit better. This is Faith Garcia from Our American Stories reporting to you from the Villages, Florida. And thanks as always for that report, Faith. And thank you, Violet. Push through it, she said. Push through it. And God will reward you for the struggle you've gone through. And for all the single moms out there, and my bride's mom was a single mom, four kids. And I was just thinking about her because she worked 12 hours a day, six days a week, no vacation. My wife never remembered her mother taking a single vacation. Sometimes the lights wouldn't come on and they got through it. And all the girls graduated from college. So push through and we celebrate single moms all over this country. It's hard enough being a mom with a husband. It's really tough without one. Violet's story, here on Our American Stories.